Hello, and welcome to the Journal on Middle Eastern Politics and Policy podcast. My name is Nicholas Norberg, and I'm here with Maryam Ghanem. We've got a couple of stories to talk about here, but we're going to start off with this story in Egypt. Egypt's parliament this week voted on a resolution to amend the constitution. Maryam, uh, what, uh, what exactly did they vote on? The hot topic that everyone is talking about is the extension to the presidential term. So originally the term limit for a president was four years, and um, that's been changed to six years. They've kept the limit at two terms in office, but and they've also included in these amendments a transitional article that states that the current president of Egypt can run again for two additional terms, which allows Sisi to stay in power until 2034. And other amendments that they're making are regarding the judiciary. The president now has the power to appoint the heads of judicial bodies. The president also has the right to appoint the prosecutor general. And the uh, armed forces, they've been given a lot more powers through these amendments. So basically what's happening is Sisi's consolidating his power and extending his power, and also the armed forces are becoming a little bit more powerful than the judiciary, which, you know, this conflict of interest of having the president appoint the prosecutor general and and the judicial bodies, this makes the judiciary less independent than it already was. So it's common knowledge that military has been in power in Egyptian politics since Morsi was removed from power. However, there seems to be some concern that what these constitutional amendments would do is basically institutionalize that de facto reality. You know, is that, is that, do you think that's a fair way to characterize it? I definitely think that's a fair way to characterize it. And I think it's, it's very, it's, it's really frustrating if you've been following Egyptian politics since 2014. Sisi said that he wouldn't run for re-election. He did that. Um, he also said that he wouldn't um, seek to amend the constitution to extend his powers. He's doing that currently. So it just it is very concerning to Egyptians how much this is being institutionalized. But it isn't surprising because of the current state in Egypt and the crackdowns and the repression. No one is surprised by this vote. It, it was 100% expected to happen, but it's just because you expect it to happen doesn't make it less frightening when it does happen because this is now in the Constitution. This is now going to apply to a lot of presidents, and who knows when they'll amend it again. Um, and I think this just kind of proves to people how much power CC has. Not that you needed that proven, but it just it proves it across the board, especially within parliament. Um, 500, 485 out of the 596 lawmakers that were present at this vote voted to approve these changes. That's a huge number. And uh, of the lawmakers that did oppose this vote, have we had a statement from them? Do we have any sense of where the opposition stands on this or how they're even able to oppose, to meaningfully oppose something like this? I mean, it seems pretty certain that these amendments are going to go forward regardless of the no votes. And there's not really very much way to meaningfully oppose this, but you know, what has uh, the opposition said about their stance? So from within parliament on February 12th, the, the opposition members of parliament came out saying that they actually support the amendments. So they came out in support of these changes. So there really isn't they're probably under a lot of pressure where, you know, there's a lot of threats. There's been a lot of lawsuits that are going around directed at these um, members of parliament. So 
in terms of parliament, the opposition is just very weak and um, they're accepting this as their fate at this point. Whereas there has been opposition from human rights organizations around the world and in Egypt saying that this is you know, detrimental to Egyptian democracy and it's just consolidating Sisi's power. But from within parliament, it, they did change their stance right before the vote was supposed to take place. So the second that that happened, everyone knew that it was just a done deal. And it's clear that parliament doesn't have really the capacity to oppose, you know, these amendments. You mentioned that they're under a lot of pressure. How has this overwhelming majority vote been sort of engineered? Yeah, so an interesting report came out published by Madamosra on the meetings that were occurring between the General Intelligence Services and um, Parliament prior to these amendments coming into play. And what the purpose of these meetings were was to kind of discuss how we could extend Sisi's power. And so having the intelligence services that embedded in the process of, of um, the constitutional amendments and just with parliament is very scary and it's and it's not something that you know single member members of parliament could oppose in Egypt and isn't CC's son the head of the general intelligence services so he's he's at a senior position at the general intelligence services he's not exactly the head but that's also something he was part of these meetings obviously and so that's that's also something that's been raising a few eyebrows. So what's the next step in this process for Parliament to actually formally adopt these amendments and make them part of the Constitution? So basically what happens is that there's a second final vote in about two months once the text of the constitutional amendments have been reviewed and and approved. And then a referendum is expected to occur after that vote passes because it looks like it'll most likely pass within a month. So, So it's still in the process, but after today's vote, I don't think anyone is holding their breath for any change. You know, people in support of this have been saying that this is, we need CC in power because we need stability. And then people that are opposing this you know, are talking about how this undermines democracy. And I think it's very important to consider what what is important to people. Is it stability or democracy? And why can't we have both? Thanks for that update on Egypt, Miriam. We're going to transition over to Libya. So can you walk us through what's happening right now in Libya, Nick? So over the last couple of weeks, General Khalifa Haftar has mobilized his forces, which are kind of known under the umbrella of the Libyan National Army, the LNA, in an operation in Libya's southeast. So Haftar's forces, the LNA, are headquartered in Tobruk, which is the seat of Libya's eastern government, the House of Representatives. This is a little bit on the complicated side and gets into some of the context of the Libyan civil war, but basically the House of Representatives, the HOR, is known as Libya's eastern government. It is seated in Tobruk and kind of contests the authority of the UN-backed government, which is called the Government of National Accord, the GNA, which is based in Tripoli. This stems from an electoral dispute that started in 2014, but essentially after this electoral dispute, Haftar led a group of military officers. Haftar was an exiled military officer who returned to the country after Qaddafi was toppled and kind of started to gather loyalists around himself. Haftar has kind of emerged as the most powerful warlord in Libya. Uh, During the civil war, he's been one of the ones who has been, you know, most effective in recruiting different armed groups to his cause. And they're kind of collectively known as the LNA now, but it's important to note that 
they're neither the official armed forces of Libya, nor are they a monolithic organization. I mean, there is kind of a hardcore of supporters who are quite loyal to Haftar and, you know, kind of resemble a traditional military. But there are also a lot of groups that are affiliated with Haftar and that are known as members of the LNA, but they're more allies than they are you know, subordinated to a uniform structure of command in the way that you would typically think about a military. So Haftar's offensive right now in the southeast of Libya is basically targeted towards taking control of the last major pocket of territory that is outside the control of either the government in Tripoli or the government in Tobruk. This is uh, particularly important right now for Haftar, seizing this territory because he's trying to consolidate his hold over the LNA and position himself as the leading figure within the Eastern government. Even though he's not an elected representative, even though he hasn't run for election, he's kind of positioned himself as the new strongman who should be running Libya. The Southwest region is also particularly important because it includes uh, an oil field called El Sharara, uh, which is one of the biggest oil fields in Libya. Haftar's forces recaptured the oil field at Sharara about a week ago at this point and uh, have been in talks with the workers there and with the National Oil Corporation in Libya, the NOC, to restart production at the oil field. So the NOC is kind of this interesting body that oversees oil production and sales uh, and export. So Nick, tell us why is this latest offensive in, in southwest Libya important? Why should we be paying attention to this right now? So this most recent offensive uh, is particularly relevant right now because Haftar is essentially trying to consolidate his position after elections were postponed in December. Libya was supposed to have a new round of elections in December. In the Western government, uh, in Tripoli was supposed to have a new round of elections. But Haftar is basically pressing his claim right now to be, you know, the person who is best positioned to be the new leader of Libya, basically. And uh, so by capturing this oil field, you know, he's kind of adding a really important source of revenue to the territory that the LNA already controls. But in addition to that, he's also attempting to take control of as much as much of Libya's former territory as possible so that he can project the image of being Libya's rightful leader. Thank you for that update, Nick. We will be monitoring the situation in Libya and providing our, our readers with updates. Now to move on to a different story, the House voted on Wednesday to withdraw U.S. combat forces from Yemen. The United States House of Representatives. So Nick, can you tell us what this means um, for the current um, situation in Yemen, how affect the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia? What, what does this do for, for Yemen? Yeah, so this is the U.S. support for the war in Yemen uh, has been a kind of a hot issue for Congress since the murder of uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in October. This kind of drew a lot of attention to Saudi Arabia's activities around the region, especially its overt human rights violations uh, in the war in Yemen. And Congress uh, has really been making a point of emphasizing to President Trump that it is displeased with an uncritical U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's military operations in Yemen. This resolution is not necessarily going to be as far-reaching as it may initially sound. It's a pr- it's a very important symbolic rejection by the House of Trump's foreign policy, particularly in this area of intervention in Yemen. However, it does include a provision that will continue U.S. intelligence operations in Yemen 
and you know it doesn't make any move to restrict the president's authority in that regard. It does, however, take place against a backdrop of negotiations that are being brokered by the UN over the status of Hodaida. Hodaida is still the site of really significant tension between the Houthis and the uh, Saudi-backed former Yemeni government uh, under Adi Abdullah Saleh. The situation in Hodaida has been really damaging for the country. Hodaida is the main point of ingress for humanitarian aid in Yemen, and the Saudi-led coalition's heavy-handed attempt to unseat Houthi forces in Hodaida has really caused a lot of humanitarian suffering and makes it really difficult to distribute aid for the rest of the country and kind of, you know, turns Hodaida into a choke point for humanitarian aid. So the UN has been very concerned with maintaining the ceasefire that was agreed for Hodaida. There's been, I think, over 100, uh, there, there have been numerous violations of that ceasefire since uh, it was negotiated. However, the UN is trying to remain optimistic about its negotiations with the warring factions in Hodaida and is trying to prioritize humanitarian concerns here. Most recently, last week, the belligerents in Hodaida agreed to a preliminary agreement to withdraw their forces from Hodaida. However, actually implementing that deal is proving somewhat problematic. The two sides are supposed to engage in a prison swap and a prisoner swap, but have been kind of unable to agree about the number of prisoners that they're supposed to be exchanging. So those delays you know, really slow down the entire process and make it difficult for the UN to build trust between the two parties. Moving forward, I mean, Saudi Arabia is still continuing its you know, operations in Yemen apace. Eight fishermen were killed this week you know, in a Saudi bombing in Hodaida. And it's an important issue for the US Congress uh, to be taking, but it kind of remains to be seen how impactful it will actually be on the ground. This measure is going to go back to the Senate before it's actually taken care of. So uh, we'll see you know, where this goes. It's, it, it really is more of a symbolic gesture. All right. Thank you for that final update. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And we will, um, nope, nope. Thank you for that final update. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We will be back in your feed very soon with, um, with more of the top stories in the Middle East and North Africa.